He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The title of the message for tonight is Jesus Calls a Tax Collector. Jesus Calls a Tax Collector. Chuck Swindoll, a pastor, author, and radio preacher, he tells the story of a young man from a wealthy family that was about to graduate from high school. It was custom in their affluent community for parents to give their graduating children a new car. And the boy and his dad had spent weeks visiting one dealership after another. The week before graduation, they found the perfect car. The boy was certain it would be in the driveway on graduation night. On the eve of his graduation, however, his father handed him a small package wrapped in colorful paper. It was a Bible. The boy was so angry, he threw the Bible down and stormed out of the house. He and his father never saw each other again. Several years later, the news of the father's death finally brought the son home again. Following the funeral, he sat alone one evening going through his father's possessions when he came across the Bible his dad had given him. Overwhelmed with grief, he cracked it open for the first time. And when he did, a cashier's check dated the day of his high school graduation fell into his lap in the exact amount of the car they had chosen together. Rebuked by surprise. Rebuked by surprise. That's a pretty tragic story, right? And I want to use that story as a springboard into our story tonight. The line, rebuked by surprise. And I hope that tonight's message will in some ways be both a surprise and a rebuke. I hope that the surprise will be a sanctifying surprise. Perhaps you don't know the Lord yet. Then I pray that it would be a saving surprise for you. And I hope that the rebuke will humble you and help you. And most importantly, I hope that Jesus Christ will be seen in a greater light and that you would see yourself in a lesser light. So in our passage, we're going to learn about another aspect of the mission of Jesus. And depending on your response to it, all could be well or all could be tragic, just like the opening story. In verses 13 to 17, we're going to see three things. Jesus calling the unrighteous, Jesus chilling with the unrighteous, and Jesus condemning the righteous. Okay, so three, three things. That's the outline for tonight. First, Jesus calls the unrighteous, verses 13 and 14. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. So in these two verses, 
we'll see Jesus doing the unsurprising and the surprising. Mark begins by telling us that Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to Jesus, and he was teaching them. So as, as we've been learning, the crowds continue to grow. Jesus continues to teach, and Jesus continues to be on the move. And this isn't surprising because we've been talking about this throughout the weeks. And if you remember what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 38, he says, And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Notice how verse 13 starts out. It says, He went out again. Jesus is active. He's, he's on the move. He's constantly on the move. He has a message for the masses. He's not sitting around. This is what Jesus did. He went out again. This was his routine. And for most of you, your life, for the most part, is also routine. Your day consists of probably something along these lines, of school, food, homework, shower, and then repeat. School, food, homework, shower, repeat. And then two times a week, maybe one time a week, you go to church on Sunday, and another time a week, you come here. And you may feel like nothing's really happening in your life right now. You could be sitting and waiting for something to happen. Or you may be bored out of your mind at home, especially during this year of COVID. But what we need to understand is that God has you exactly where you are. Your opportunities to live out Christ are in the routine. It's, it's now, it's all the time, not only at church and not only at youth group. And that tells us that we need to be active in our faith. Everything you do should be done as an act of worship. So some questions. At school, are you living as a follower of Christ? How about at home? In your normal, everyday activities, are you seeking to bring honor and glory to Christ? Life is often filled with routine. And unless you embrace what might seem small and insignificant, your days will begin to be filled with complaints, grumbling, and frustration. Unless you understand that worship is all the time, every moment of every day, the mundane will make your days long and lifeless. However, regular routines, when they're properly viewed with an eye toward the glory of God, they can be a source, a great source of joy and be life-giving as you recognize who it is that you serve. So that's the, that's the unsurprising. Next, we'll move to the surprising. In verse 14, we'll see something that isn't just strange, but scandalous. The call of Levi is, is shocking and appalling and even disgraceful as, we, as we'll learn what a tax collector was. So Jesus passes by and sees Levi, who's also known as Matthew, and he's sitting at the tax booth. And tax collectors had a bad reputation. In those days, Jewish people were required to pay taxes to Rome. And in Galilee, the region where this account takes place, the responsibility to collect taxes fell to Herod Antipas. Herod employed tax collectors to work for him, and one of those workers was Levi, or Matthew. So for Levi, after 
he would meet the minimum quota for Rome, anything above what he collected was his to keep. And when you combine high financial aspirations with freedom to exploit people, you become very profitable and you also make Rome profitable as well. In a sense, you feed the hand that feeds you. However, the hand that feeds you is the enemy to your people. So for, for the Jews, tax collectors were the most hated and despised people because they were, they were shady businessmen and traitors to their own people. They were sellouts who lined their own pockets. They were crooked robbers who squeezed out extra money from their own kinsmen. And they were dishonest men who were regarded by the Jews as outcasts from society. They also brought shame and disgrace to their families. In fact, they they were barred from attending synagogue, prohibited from testifying in court, and they were considered unclean. They were classed as the most debased sinners of that day. And Jesus, knowing all of this about tax collectors, he sees Levi at the tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. And that should take us by surprise, that we should take a step back and and figure out why would Jesus want a tax collector to be part of his team? Why would Jesus deliberately seek out a tax collector to be his disciple? Nobody in the culture was more hated, and choosing Levi seems unimaginable. He shouldn't even be considered. He's not qualified. So is Jesus making a mistake here? Jesus makes no mistakes, ever. He views sinners differently than we do, though. Jesus views sinners differently than we do. And this ought to be a rebuke to us because we, we view ourselves as better than others. We view ourselves as better than a tax collector. But in contrast, Jesus welcomes the unwelcome. He calls the unimaginable. He has mercy toward the most undeserving people and outcasts in, this, in society. The world looks at the likes of a tax collector or you can think of a modern-day greedy CEO and wants to judge and punish them. Jesus, on the, other, on the other hand, he moves towards Levi and calls him. Jesus sees sinners as sick people who need a physician, and he's the physician to help them. Look again at verse 14. It says, as Jesus passed by, this wasn't random chance. Jesus was on a mission. He's the one that initiates. He's the one that calls. He wasn't just happening along and then came and then saw Levi. He was on a mission to call Levi. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And when Jesus saw him, he gave this command, follow me. And Mark tells us Levi rose and followed him. This was decisive and immediate obedience. Levi responded to the authority of Jesus and his call. And partly this was probably because Matthew was aware, I mean, Levi was aware of of who Jesus was to a certain extent. He must have heard about Jesus, what he was doing around town. He wasn't blind to who he was. He was convicted of his sin and recognized his need of forgiveness. And he recognized that as a tax collector, he was guilty 
before God. Like the call we, we learned earlier about the call of the first four disciples, they also responded immediately, just like Levi does here. However, unlike the call of the first four, his call demands more and involves more. For the four fishermen, they could always go back to fishing. They could always return to fishing. For Levi, there's no going back to being a tax collector. Abandoning his tax booth meant the end of of that career for him. There's no going back. He was leaving everything to follow Jesus. In Luke's account of this passage, we're given that detail. We're told, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Levi left everything. And because his life of sin was connected to his profession, his repentance had significant implications. His decision to follow Jesus was all or nothing. How many of you know the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus? Okay. The lyrics of that song are based on the last words of a man from a remote village tribe in India. During the Great Revival in Wales in the early 1900s, many missionaries were spreading the gospel. And one of the places the gospel was spreading to was this region in India known as Assam. And Assam was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. And this was the environment, this was the hostile environment that a group of missionaries went into. And as you would imagine, they weren't welcomed. But there was one missionary who succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and also his two children. And the man's faith proved contagious and many villagers began to accept Christianity. And after some time, the village chief got angry, and he summoned all the villagers to come outside. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. It was in the midst of this situation that the man composed the lyrics to the song. The man started singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And the chief was angered when the man refused and ordered his archers to shoot down his two children. And as both his children lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children. You'll lose your wife too. The man saying in reply, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back, no turning back. The chief now was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be shot down as well. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. And now he asked for the last time, I'll give you one more opportunity, opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man saying, the cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. In God's great providence, with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who ordered the killings was so moved by the faith of the man, and in a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, 
I too belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. For the man, there was no turning back. For Levi, there's no turning back. For you and I, there's no turning back. That's the call of discipleship. It involves total and complete comes with sacrifice and cost. Following a thing that we do, not something that we simply think or believe. Following is something that we do, not something that we just think or believe. And with Jesus, it's all or nothing. He's not asking to be added to your life. He's asking to uproot your entire life and take over. When Christ called Levi, his life was transformed. He went from a man of the world to a lover of God. The power, the money, the pleasures of the world all lost their grip on his heart. He had a new heart with new longings and new desires, and he abandoned his tax booth and came to Christ for forgiveness of sins. And though he lost a career, he gained eternal life. Steve Lawson says, if you have forsaken the world to follow Jesus, you have given up dirt for diamonds. Now, is that how you feel? Is that your experience? Here's a key question. What good reason did Jesus have to call Levi? None. What good reason did Jesus have to call me and you? None. If you can find one good reason for Jesus calling you to himself, then you've, you haven't understood what it means to be called by him. We're undeserving just like Levi. There's nothing good in us that would merit Christ calling us. It's by his mercy that we're his. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's important for us to know. Christ chose you. You didn't choose him. And unless God in intervenes and imparts life into your lifeless spiritual soul, you remain dead in your sins and trespasses. And this is cause for us to embrace the mercy of Jesus to save sinners. So Jesus calls the unrighteous. And who's the unrighteous? Both Levi, the tax collector, and us. So next, number two, Jesus chills with the unrighteous, verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So after Jesus calls Levi to himself, Levi invites his friends, other tax collectors and other sinners, to come and meet Jesus. He honors Jesus with a banquet. In Luke 5.29, we're told that it was a great feast that Levi um, gave to Jesus in his home. Levi is now a follower of Christ, and he wants his friends to follow Jesus too. And Mark gives us this scene. Jesus is reclining, or he's eating or dining with many tax collectors and sinners. This tells us that this wasn't a normal meal, but a banquet. 
because at normal meals you would sit down but at banquets you would recline reclining was was where you would lay down on your left side on your elbow with a cushion under your arm with your head towards the table and your feet pointing out towards the walls and the host would be at the center of a of a setup that was u-shaped and a to each side of the host in the center the guests would be placed there and they would recline on either side of the host so there would be a floor level table where they would put on put food and that's where they would dine so jesus was willing to associate with tax collectors and sinners by sharing a feast with them and the word sinners here refers to irreligious jews meaning those who deliberately violated god's laws it was a term that the pharisees used for all jews who didn't follow their traditions or legal of legal purity the pharisees held to the mosaic law and rabbinic traditions and anyone who had no respect for their teaching were considered notoriously wicked the most vile and worthless of people that means that for the pharisees the desert the the ones who deserved were deserving and the ones that who were righteous were those who followed the law of moses and we have to understand that no one held so strictly to the law as did the pharisees so that means in the viewpoint of the pharisees sinners and tax collectors were those who didn't follow the law of moses the pharisees blind, blindly thought they were superior to sinners and tax collectors and here we have a picture of the messiah reclining with sinners jesus was a friend of sinners and here we see him fellowshipping with the unclean social outcasts of society and a lesson for us here is have you ever compared yourself to someone else have you ever thought to yourself i can't believe so and so does that or lives that way or speaks that way i would never do something like that i would never say something like that have you ever equated your level of morality of doing good of being better than others and used that as a gauge to tell yourself at least i'm not as bad as that person or at least i'm not like that other person as you can see we're also prone to the same superior attitude as the pharisees and we need to be aware of having that kind of of gross attitude don't compare yourselves with others that's not the standard the standard is god's perfect holiness and if you spend just a brief amount of time reflecting on that truth you'll quickly realize you have nothing to boast about and this ought again to be a rebuke to us because we have the same superior holier than thou attitude that marked the pharisees jesus's willingness to associate with tax collectors and sinners by sharing with them in a feast deeply offended the scribes and pharisees and what we'll see is that far from condoning their sins jesus chills with the unrighteous because he came to save sinners and this leads to the final point number 3 
Jesus condemns the righteous, verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call right the righteous, but sinners. The scribes of the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, and instead of addressing Jesus directly, they, they instead say to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is the second conflict that we've seen. Last time, Jesus pronounced that he could forgive sins, and the scribes accused him of blasphemy, not verbally, but internally in their hearts. And now, Jesus eats with sinners, and the scribes of the Pharisees accuse him, but not directly. They accuse they talk to his disciples and accuse him, accuse him of table fellowship with the unclean and outcasts. Because for them, associating with sinners and tax collectors was considered impure. The Pharisees practice separation. That's what their name means, separated ones. They were separatists in the sense that they stressed separating from everything they considered impure, on the basis of the Mosaic law and their traditions. And that's why Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors was deeply offensive to the Pharisees. So they think they found accusation against Jesus like they did last time. Jesus is clearly eating with sinners and tax collectors. And this, is, was, this was their logic. Only sinners ate with sinners. Only sinners fellowship with other sinners. So if Jesus is eating with sinners, he was also a sinner. And again, like last time, they're wrong. Although Jesus associated with sinners and tax collectors, he didn't become unclean. This testifies to who he is. The scribes foolishly assumed their spiritual condition and saw Jesus' actions as sinful. And in response to their accusation, Jesus responds with a proverb. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus associated with sinners not because he agreed or accepted what they were doing, but to heal them, to treat them as a doctor treats his patients. Jesus shared the company of sinners because he knew they were spiritually sick. Think about it. Do healthy people need a doctor? Are there hospitals for healthy people? Do you check yourself into the emergency room when you when you feel great? Of course you don't. Jesus says what he says as an indictment against the scribes of the Pharisees. Remember, they separated themselves from sinners. In their, in their eyes, they were superior. They thought they were better. In their eyes, tax collectors and sinners were the sickest of people. So based on their, re on their reasoning, it's the tax collectors and sinners who need a physician. They're fine. They don't need a physician. 
And then notice what Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, is there anyone who's righteous? Romans 3.10 says, no, none, none is righteous. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that he came for the unrighteous. He came for sinners. So listen now, until you come to see your need, until you come to the reality of your own sinfulness before God, you won't come to Christ. To put it another way, Jesus came for those who recognize they're sick, for those aware of their need. Jesus came for those who understand that they're absolutely incapable of improving their spiritual condition. Do you, remember, do you know the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector recognized his need. He was poor in spirit. He recognized that he had no merit with God and cried out for mercy. And we're told that he was justified. He was declared righteous. Look at the end of verse 14 again. It says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God's grace comes to the humble, to those who recognize their need for him. And that has to be, that has to be your understanding of the gospel. Do you think of yourself as spiritually bankrupt? I hope you do because all of us are spiritually bankrupt. We can't get this backwards. Jesus didn't come for healthy people. He didn't come for the righteous people. He didn't come for those who think they're good. He came for sinners. And that is not bad news, that's great news. Because if Jesus only came for the righteous, then he wouldn't have come for you. And he wouldn't have come for me. You need to know that you're an unrighteous sinner and you must see your need before you can receive his grace. You must realize you're sick before he can heal you. This is something the Pharisees didn't understand. They thought they were healthy. Jesus says, I didn't come for you then. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for tax collectors. I came for paralytics. I came for lepers, for outcasts, for sinners. The Pharisees are sinners. They're sick, 
but they don't realize it. They think that their legalistic works righteousness religion is going to save them. However, Jesus teaches that everyone is a sinner and that righteousness is a gift of God to those who are repentant. Mark doesn't include the words to repentance, but Luke does in chapter 5, verse 32, where it says, Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A repentant person is someone who recognizes that they're a sinner and turns from their sin and turns to Jesus alone. The kingdom of God isn't for the self-righteous. A commentator notes that, in one sense, great sinners stand closer to God than those who think themselves righteous. For sinners are more aware of their need of the transforming grace of God. The Pharisees, who foolishly assumed that Jesus accepted the tax collectors and sinners by associating with them, they failed to understand that for Jesus to refuse to associate with sinners would have been as foolish as for a doctor not to associate with the sick. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors for the purpose of calling them to turn from their sinful ways. Rather than shaming and scolding sinners, Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. He's compassionate. He came to seek and save sinners. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus exposed the hearts of the Pharisees because they preferred that he shun sinners instead of helping them. And he also exposed their blindness by underscoring the fact that only those who recognize their sick seek out the help of a physician. Those who think they're healthy see no reason to go to a doctor. Don't you find that, that we're more like the Pharisees than we are Jesus? We separate ourselves from outcasts and from sinners. We separate the world between the good people and the bad people, whereas Jesus separates the world between the proud and the humble. What we learn is that we have a backwards mentality. We have, we have a legalistic spirit just like the Pharisees. We like to keep rules over loving God and people. We like to work hard to impress rather than resting in his grace. We like to perform duties over celebrating the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we think that that gains us favor with God. Jesus turns that completely upside down. We need to realize that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We need to realize that the distinction isn't between bad people and good people, but the distinction is between those who know they're bad and those who don't. That's crucial to understand. The question isn't who will make the cut and be righteous, but who will admit that they can never make the cut. How do you qualify for the kingdom of God? By realizing you don't qualify. Do you know your need? Do you know your sinfulness? Do you know you don't qualify? Do you know that you have nothing to offer? If you can answer yes to all of those questions, then Jesus came 
to save the likes of you. Unless you admit that you're a sinner, deserving of God's judgment, you can't be saved. Jesus saves sinners. Someone said this said it well. Hell is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside of hell and inside heaven. Heaven is filled with people who believe they deserve to be outside heaven and inside hell. So I ask you to seriously consider what we've been talking about. If you think yourself to be good, then you're proud. If you think your attempts at obedience earn you favor with God, you're fooling yourself. If you think you're better than others, you're mistaken. Understand that that's not Christianity. Christianity says that no one does good, but everything is is okay nonetheless because Jesus didn't come for the good, but for sinners. He didn't come for those who feel no need for him, but for humble people who know that without him, hopeless. Ask God to help understand more of this healing reality. Pray that God would take this teaching and massage it deep into your heart so that it changes your thinking and your posture. And thank God that salvation isn't up to us. Because if it was, heaven would be empty. No one can save themselves. It's only the grace and mercy of God that anyone is saved. So Jesus calls the unrighteous, Jesus chills with the unrighteous, and Jesus condemns the righteous. In conclusion, the one who called Levi isn't dead. That means that he still lives and he still works. Are you here tonight and know yourself to be a sinner? If so, Jesus came to save you, to forgive you of all your sins, to offer you eternal life. All you need to do is come to the great physician and you'll find rest. You'll never be right in the sight of God until you do that. Will you put your faith in Christ? Blessed are you if you do. And if you're a believer, praise God for his mercy and for Jesus Christ. Praise God that the kingdom of God isn't made up of perfect people, but forgiven people. Thank God that you've been granted the very righteousness of God as a gift of grace through faith in Christ. Don't be like the Pharisees who were self-deceived. They misdiagnosed their own spiritual condition. They thought they were good with God. They thought they were holy because they studied, taught, lived the scriptures. They were head and shoulders above everyone else in terms of external obedience. They looked super clean from the outside. From all outside appearances, they seemed like the most spiritual. They walked the walk and they talked the talk. However, in reality, they were more lost than tax collectors because tax collectors knew they were rejected by God. A commentator notes this, their assumptions prevented them from seeing what was really going on. God was not interested in cleansed appearances He was interested in cleansed hearts. Like the Pharisees, are you foolishly assuming your spiritual condition? 
Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. That verse teaches the truth that God is more concerned with a merciful heart than with the hard, hypocritical observance of external rites. 1 Samuel 16.7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I bring up Hosea 6.6, 6, not randomly, but because in Matthew's account of this passage, he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And explaining this passage, John MacArthur, he says, Cold-hearted legalism may look holy on the outside, but it does not please God who weighs thoughts and motives. In their unwillingness to show mercy to others, the Pharisees betrayed the corrupt condition of their stony hearts. Though they claimed to rigorously keep the law, the Lord's use of Hosea 6.6 exposed their failure to do so. They prided themselves on observing the letter of the law by dutifully performing sacrifices and ceremonies, but by doing so, they, ne they utterly neglected the spirit of the law as demonstrated by their unwillingness to extend grace and mercy to those who needed it. And I'll end by taking a step back from our passage and ask you, who is Jesus? Can he solve all your problems? In chapter 1, verses 40 to 45, we learn that Jesus cleansed the leper. Can he solve all your problems? Yes, because as we learn, Jesus cares and Jesus has compassion. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which we looked at last time, we learn that Jesus forgave and healed a paralytic. Can Jesus solve all your problems? Yes, because as we learn, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. And tonight, in verses 13 to 17, we ask the same question. Can he solve all your problems? Yes, if you're a sinner. Yes, if you're a sinner. May God's amazing grace be amazing to you because he gives life to those who know they're dead. May God's mercy cause you to adore him more because no one is too lost for Christ to save. And may we delight in Jesus because he came to save sinners. May we fall to our knees and worship because God has opened our eyes and revealed to us our sin and given us a great Savior. Let's pray.